This is the Out of Water Podcast. Out of Water is a production of Rio Vista Community Church in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. You can find it on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. If you like what you hear, please subscribe and tell a friend to help them find Out of Water also. Welcome, friends, to another episode of the Out of Water Podcast. My name is Sam Caston-Smith. I'm the pastor of education at Rio Vista Church, and with me today is our director of student ministries, Will Bushman. It's good to be out of the water today. Yeah, you've had a couple of teaching opportunities already today with little ones, right? Yeah, this I had two chapels already today, so we are we're all in on two different topics too. So this nice. first John is really so I don't we, know we where can we're expect at. some mashed potatoes. You're going to be talking about what were your chapel topics? Uh, we talked about joy at Bethany, and then I did a forgiveness talk through the story of Joseph at Calvary. All right. So, so if I say Joseph, I mean John. So just from here on out. <laughs> nice. All right, well, Mark is uh, recovering, he's battling cancer, and he has his next round of immunotherapy on Friday, which will probably be the day that this episode is released. And so with that, he is asking for prayers, for relief, and uh, honestly, that he never experiences side effects from that. But one of those side effects that keeps him from being here today is uh, pain in his mouth, and he has got some kind of magic mouthwash that helps him to regulate the pain but it impacts his ability to talk, which, you know, I can promise you he would want to be here if he was able, uh, but he is at home fighting cancer, so please lift him up in prayer. Mark, we are pulling for you, rooting for you. I wish you were here. Um, But we are continuing our study in John's epistle, John's first epistle, so 1 John. There's a whole bunch of ways you can say that. Long way to say 1 John. (laughs) We are studying 1 John. Um, And so what we talked about last week, uh, John basically comes out of the gates, and he is saying, you know, you need to walk in the light. And he begins to explain that when you have a relationship with Jesus, it not only changes the way that you interact with God, but it also changes the way that you interact with sin. And that means, you know, you can't... And last, last week we talked about you can't say that you don't sin, because if you say that, you make God a liar. God says you sin. He says that you need a Savior. He says that you need something to cleanse you, and so obviously you have sin. But he says you're not allowed, as a Christian who has the Spirit of God dwelling in you, changing you, you're not allowed to be content in your sin. You can't just walk in darkness and be indifferent to it. Like, you become a child of light. And if you say any of those other things, then you've missed the gospel, and you're not really in our community. Which, of course, I remember when I first heard the gospel really explained to me, I was in the middle of a mall at a kiosk working. I hated that job with everything in my being. And someone came up to me because they know you have a captive audience, and it's just the way Christians do. They see you. They're evangelists. They know you can't leave. You're the target. (laughs) And so this person came up to me, and it was the first time that I had heard the salvation by grace alone, right? That Jesus paid it all, gives it all, it's free, you're going to heaven not based on what you do. And what do you think my response to that was? I don't want it. I don't need it. Well, no, I knew that I need it. There were points in my life where I would say, "Ah, I don't need that. But at this point, like, my life was falling apart. I knew I was a wreck. Okay. But when they said, you don't have to do anything— that was so absurd to me, because I had grown up always hearing 
that to go to heaven, you have to be a good person, right? You know, heaven and hell is where they separate good people from bad people. Yeah. And so when someone came up to me and they said, hey, you, you can't do anything to earn it. It's all paid for. It's all a gift. You do nothing. My response was, well, then what's to keep me from saying, okay, yeah, I'll take some of that, but I'm still going to live this crazy life where I'm mistreating people and giving my life over to all these unhealthy, destructive behaviors? Like, what changes? And so for me, I rejected the gospel because I thought, that's just license to sin. That's absurd. That can't be the way that God works. Like, what do you mean he doesn't punish sin and he's, you know, like it made no sense to me. John, as he begins chapter 2, recognizes that everyone who's read chapter 1 is thinking, okay, so let me get this straight. Jesus paid all of my sins. I can't earn it. I have to admit that I'm a sinner, and yet it's still a salvation that's a gift to me. Well, everybody back then says, okay, well, what keeps you from sinning? And John begins chapter 2 with these words, (laughs) right? Wait, before you do that, what were you selling at the kiosk? I'm embarrassed to admit. That's all I could think about the whole story. It was beautiful, <laughs> but I really want to know so, what the kiosk was. So I was, I'll tell you, because this company is no longer, I graduated University of Florida. Everybody right now is thinking, why did you do this, Will? <laughs> now he's going to, you've wound him up. Uh, so when I graduated from University of Florida, I got a job working with A.G. Edwards, and I was the youngest stockbroker that they had ever hired. And But my boss thought, you know, he needs to be humbled. Nice. <laughs> and so... What he made me do was he says, okay, if you're going to be a good salesman, you have to understand and experience lots of rejection. And so he gave me a sheet that was like old printed out Scantron looking forms filled with thousands of names and phone numbers, and I had to cold call them. So for all of you who hate cold callers, you're welcome. (laughs) That was me at one point. And it really is. It's like rejection after rejection after rejection. It's humbling. It's miserable. Nobody wants to talk to you. And so because that apparently wasn't good enough... Wow, then you did an in-person rejection. Yeah, then it was the kiosk selling financial securities, because who doesn't want to hand their retirement planning over to the guy who's operating next to the sunglass hut? Yeah, the perfume guy can't even get any business. (laughs) It was so bad. I hated it, and I was basically just feeling apologetic to everybody who walked by me. But they would, you know, Christians would come to me like that. I, I got targeted quite a bit. So... John 2, on that note, like, remember, here's Sam and many other people who are thinking, I don't buy this gospel. What do you mean I don't have to contribute anything to it? What do you mean I don't have to be good enough? So that means I can just do whatever. Well, John starts, he says, my little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. And you think, what? Like, everything you just told me is that I can sin and still have the liberty of knowing that God forgives me and I'm going to heaven. How in the world can you claim that you're writing that so that I don't sin? And what's the answer, Will? I mean, it feels like a little bit like whiplash when you read it like mm-hmm. continuously. You're like, whoa, John, where are we going with this? <laughs> like, <laughs> it really does. But, but why? Like, how, how did what he said in chapter 1 make you stop and say, oh, yeah, well, I'm definitely not going to sin then? I think it's interesting the way that he does connect behavior with a true understanding of who Jesus is. Mm -hmm. Like he he understands the fact that, yeah, there's still going to be sin and it's going to be a long project and glorification is going to be the only time where sin does not exist in us. But he does show us that, hey, if you meet the real Jesus that I'm proclaiming to you, something has to change because you can't encounter the real living Jesus and not. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah. You can't be stuck in the same way you were. And I mean, that's just what he saw. Even it's interesting now because how old is he, you think? Like in his 80s? John, when he's writing this, uh, probably. Okay, so he's, he's, he's like... He's older. Yeah, he's like a grandfather. He's looking back on everything that he saw, and he saw all those wonderful things that he writes about in his Gospels of people constantly coming to Jesus and leaving just absolutely transformed. Mm-hmm. And now he's looking at a bunch of people who <laughs> don't see the real Jesus, are not transformed, are just kind of confused. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and there's part of the Gospel, you know, what, one of the things that it teaches is that when you come to Christ and he cleanses you from all sin, and He makes you a vessel that's now worthy for the Holy Spirit of God to now dwell in, that the Spirit of God comes into your life and begins to wage war for your life. And the flesh, you know, all the the self-absorbed instincts and the the prideful desires and all the lusts of the flesh, they go to war, and they're like, no, 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 you need to find your satisfaction in all the things of the world that are going to leave you empty and, you know, enslave you. Just keep chasing it. Sex and addiction and all this other stuff. Chase that, and the Spirit's going, no, 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 you belong to God. And so you have a war in you, by definition, of being a Christian. The Spirit dwells in you, and the Spirit is jealous. He does not want to share you with another so there's that going on, but there's also the side of this that's that's just from a very human element. If you have the Savior of the world who had everything in heaven, and he set it all aside, and he came into this world, and he suffered for you, and he purchased you at the greatest cost he could possibly pay, which is his own life, his own suffering, and he bought you, and he said, you're mine and I'm redeeming you, you're that precious to me, and you're that costly to me, then anybody with a conscience who has seen that level of kindness given to you would feel terrible in response to that level of love saying, eh, yeah, I know my sin put you on the cross. I know my sin is what caused you to come here and suffer. I'm going to keep at it. You know, Spurgeon said sin is Christicide. It, mm. it killed yeah. God. And so when you convert, if you love Jesus and you see that he hates your sin that much and he went to that extreme to defeat your sin, then, when, like I says, when you have a different relationship with God, you also need to have a different relationship with sin. Yeah, and I think, maybe this is just me personally, but sometimes I hate being in that tension, mm-hmm. like the Holy totally. Spirit tension. Like that's the part that gets frustrating sometimes in this life of spiritual maturing and whatnot. But then John's coming to us and then like, you should feel that tension. Like mm-hmm. the tension's a good sign that the spirit is working in you mm-hmm. and that you're not deceiving yourself, that you don't need the spirit's work, but it's that you're messy and broken and the spirit is transforming you. So mm-hmm. in that messy, like rubber band tension, you're like, I don't want to be here anymore. <laughs> like, yeah. That's where the work yeah. is happening. That's where the spirit mm-hmm. is like, it should be a joy, which is, sounds backwards, but like that the Spirit is waging war in us, even though it's messy and it's mm-hmm. tiring, and it's like, can't we just be perfected already? Yeah, we will be one day, but right now, I feel it's good that the Spirit is waging war. Yeah. I remember Tom preaching a sermon one time, and he, he made this comment, and it's really simple, but it hit me like really profound at the moment. He said, as a Christian, you're going to struggle with sin, but as a Christian you're going to struggle with sin. Yeah. And it's like, yeah, sin's going to be in your life, but if if the Spirit of God dwells in you, you're going to struggle against it. You're not going to be comfortable with it. And that's always blown me away. And what John is getting at here, you've just read promises like, you know, if you just confess your sins 
God is faithful and just to forgive you and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. He's just amazingly kind. And what Paul will write in Romans is it's the kindness of God that leads to repentance. Mm. If you have a taskmaster over if if you have a boss over you who's like, do better, you sorry piece of junk, you know. I feel that. Yeah, I mean, but... Yeah, right. (laughs) (laughs) But, you know, the only motivation you have to do better is just not to be yelled at. You know, fear will only drive you to do the bare minimum not to get punished. Yeah, you just walk on eggshells your whole life. Right, but if you have someone who genuinely loves you and has invested in you and has shown, man, I want so much more, and I'm with you, come hell or high water, I'm, I'm no doubt, I've got your back... Like, then all of a sudden, your motivation for not wanting to fail changes. Yeah. It changes to, man, I want, I want you to smile. I want to please you. You're so kind to me that when I don't measure up to what you desire of me, I feel bad. I want to do better. Yeah. Like, it changes the motivation. It's, it's the difference between gospel and religion. It really yeah. is. John has written this letter so that you don't sin. So it's not just cheap grace, which is gross. Uh, He says, but if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And so here comes this idea that when you do sin, Jesus Christ right now is reigning in heaven at the right hand of God the Father, and what is he doing? He's advocating for you. It's amazing. It's pretty wild. And so, you know, you'll hear people say, you know, imagine a courtroom and God is the judge and Jesus is there and he is coming to plead on your behalf. And it's not that Jesus is up there saying, hey, you know, he really is a good guy. Trust me. No. (laughs) No. What he's saying is, I've bought that one. Hmm. Like, they they have my righteousness. They are cleansed from all sin. And I was listening to a sermon recently where it said, you know, one of the ways that that analogy always fails is it makes it sound like, you know, God the Father is just this ferocious, wrathful, I can't wait to punish them, and Jesus gets in the way and is like, oh, no, 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 please, please don't. You know, they're really nice, I promise. And this is where you have to go and you have to remember in the sovereignty of God, you know, Ephesians 1, that God the Father chose you from before the foundations of the world. John 3.16, for God so loved the world, what? That he gave that he gave his only son. And so the you know in that analogy of the courtroom where Jesus is the advocate, yeah, he's the advocate. But the judge behind the bench isn't eager to just destroy you. Yeah. The judge has sent the advocate, you know. The judge ordained that the advocate would give away his righteousness to you. So everybody in this courtroom is for you. And that like really believing God the Father loves you to the nth degree. God the Son loves you to the nth degree. God the Holy Spirit loves you to the nth degree, and they are all pulling in the same direction for your redemption. So in a sense, everyone in that courtroom is your advocate. Yeah, Yeah. really, truly. So verse 2, it says, He is the propitiation for our sins. And propitiation is a great theological term. It basically means that he's he's satisfied the wrath. That you know, you imagine the Hoover Dam, right? God is so patient, he he is so long suffering for us, but he's also just. And so as mankind is accumulating all this sin, God is not pouring out his wrath upon that sin. And yet there is wrath being stored up for all that sin. And so I always imagine like the Hoover Dam. All the wrath of God is being stored up behind this great wall. It's there, 
You know, God didn't just forget about sin. He didn't just ignore sin. So this wrath has to fall on somebody. And what the gospel says is, okay, all that stored up wrath, God doesn't just say, okay, just kidding, we're all happy now, I forget about it, nobody has to pay. No, Jesus is at the foot of the Hoover Dam. And when the dam breaks and that wrath falls, it falls on him for you. And so he has satisfied the wrath of God. That wrath has punished sin. God is just by by laying down punishment for sin. And so Jesus is the propitiation for our sins, and not only for ours, but also the sins of the whole world. And here you have John, who living in the first century, when the people of God were thought to be exclusively Israel, right? Mm -hmm. Exclusively for the Jews. John is saying, no, 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 no. Every nation under heaven, every nationality, every race has access to this propitiation that's in Christ. Yeah, it's a real battle for these people, right? For them to understand that, that it's not just, hey, because we're the chosen people of God, because we were born with the Israel bloodline. It's saying, no, Mm -hmm. like this is going to go out. Like Jesus isn't just dying for you guys, which is awesome, but also like everyone can be involved. Yes. That was a huge, huge, huge theological debate in the early church because it had always been, you know, so many of the Jews had thought we're, we're God's chosen people, and so we need to we need to war against Rome. We need to, to exclude all the other nations, and they had become so myopically self-obsessed that what they didn't realize is that you go back to the beginning, and we've said this before on the podcast, like the purpose statement for the gospel in Genesis 3.15 is that God is coming to redeem all the descendants of Adam. It's, you know, his promise of mercy that's given to Noah, that he wouldn't judge the world again. Well, who are who are the descendants of Noah? It's everybody who hears my voice. It's every nation under heaven. When he gives the promise to Abraham, he says, I'm calling your descendants to bless the nations. You're going to be a blessing to all people, all nations on earth. So the whole purpose statement for redemptive history is to bless every nation and Israel was like, oh, you're using us? Well, we must be the special ones, and you must not like anyone else. And and so it's like, no, 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 you were blessed to be a blessing, blessing yeah. to the nations. And they had lost sight of that. And so here John's like, no, 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 he's not just propitiation for us, but for every nation under heaven. Forgiveness is available to everybody. Verse 3, and by this, we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Gulp. And this is where the legalist says, okay, well, wait a minute, I thought it was by grace, and now you're saying that we only get to know him if we keep his commandments. How do you parse this? How do you make sense? If you know him, you keep his commandments. Yeah, I think this no-so test, it kind of seems like, like, this is a test, it is a little heart check to be like, Mm -hmm. okay, do we know him? And And this no is more than just like, I know him, like, Mm -hmm. in my head. Like, this is an experiential no, wouldn't you say? Oh, for sure. Like, this is like, hey, now that you're experiencing the love, I'm talking about forgiveness to you, now what happens? Mm -hmm. And all through the Scriptures and the Gospels, all through this, you find out that the, the most important thing for your salvation is for you to know and to trust Jesus, right? So... It's not about what you do, it's about knowing Him. Like the, you Remember the very terrifying thing, I think it's in Matthew 25, where it says, many are going to come to me on the day of judgment, right? And they're going to come, and they're doing amazing things. They're casting out demons, they're, yeah. they're, they're probably speaking in tongues, they're doing all of these miraculous deeds, and they come to Him, and Jesus looks at them and says, depart from me, 
I never knew you. You've done all these things. You, you, your works are piled up, but you're doing it, and you don't know me. And this is saying, okay, you can do good works and not know him, but you can't know him and not do good works. Does that, that make sense? Yeah, because again, just like we talked about, like if you're experiencing him, something transforms in you. Mm-hmm. It's just not like, okay, God, I'm experiencing you, and, and your power is neutral in my life, but it's working in everybody else's. No, that's not what the power of God does. It's not what the conviction of the Spirit does. It's saying, no, you're changing. Mm-hmm. Like It's doing something in you. It could be slow, and a lot of times it is a slow process, but you know, this is a good, like, hey, just take a pause and like let's just check this in all of our own hearts. This gets down to the the old illustration where you imagine, you know, Jesus says, you'll know my people by their fruit. Yeah. Other other places, you'll know my people by their love. And the way that that works, what we tend to do, and I've, you've probably heard this illustration a million times, is we tend to look at our tree that's producing bad fruit, and we go, oh, I gotta, I gotta pluck the bad fruit off, and then, you know, I gotta muster up some good fruit and, like, staple it onto my tree it doesn't feel natural, it's not there, but hey, I want some good works because I want my, my you know, I, I prefer an apple tree, not pears. And so we pluck the pears and put on apples, and it doesn't work like that. What the yeah. gospel says, and is very clear, like, you have to die to yourself. When, when the gospel comes along, Jesus is like, I want you to know me, I want you to treasure me more than everything else that you have your hands on, which requires you to let go of all that stuff to grab hold of me. And elsewhere, it's, you know, you have to crucify yourself. You have to die to the flesh. And what he's wanting you to see is you got to dig up your roots. Like your whole tree (laughs) needs to be dug up and you need new roots. You need to be grafted into the vine, to Jesus. You need an, an entire transplant. And then you'll bear good fruit. But you can't take a bad tree that's not bearing good fruit and try to force fruit. You have to have new roots. You have to be entirely remade. And so this is getting at the point, like, if you're looking at the fruit, you'll know what kind of root systems. You know, it's. I heard somebody say, um, just because it bears apples, that's not what makes it an apple tree. It's because it's an apple tree that it bears apples. Does that make sense? Yeah. Am I saying that clearly? That that was clear after I thought that. (laughs) But... It's your identity's changed, and therefore, with a changed identity, a changed nature in you, the Spirit dwelling in you and warring for your soul, now all of a sudden you're going to start producing good fruit. You can't sustainably produce good fruit if there is no Spirit in you. If you keep my commandments, that's evidence that you know me. And he says as much in the Gospel of John, too. Those who those who love me will keep my commands. Yeah, it's interesting because in First John, he's not writing anything that John hasn't really written, which is fascinating mm-hmm. if you think about John. Because right now, it just goes back to you know John is it fifteen that he talks about abiding? Mm-hmm. Yeah, like, he's the vine dresser. Like he's going to do the work. Like like you're saying, an apple tree is not like squeezing itself. I mean, like I want to make lemons today. Like that's just <laughs> not how it works. Yeah. it just naturally flows. And he's going to get to that point where he goes back to that same chapter, and his whole thing is going to be like, hey, the secret to this is abiding. Mm-hmm. Like, it's not, like, this is what it's all about. Like, when you abide in Jesus, right, that's going to be where the fruit comes. That's going to be where the commandment keeping comes. And, and that's the secret to it all. It's not just like, hey, like, just be better. <laughs> like, squeeze it out, all your energy. Like, just, ugh. Like, make it happen, guys. He's saying, no, like, the power is not in you to do that. Like, you need Jesus. 
Yeah, there's a, a great quote by Corey Ten Boom, who's one of the most godly women who's ever lived, incredible forgiveness. She's a survivor of a Holocaust concentration camp and afterwards reached the point where she forgave her tormentors and captors. I mean, just incredible, incredibly godly woman. But she makes this comment that one of the most exhausting things human beings can ever endeavor to do is to live a godly life without the Spirit of God in them. Hmm. That it that it just becomes the, like absolute slavery, you know, because you're you're trying to do something that's not natural to you, and you're striving to earn an approval that you feel like you can never live up to because it's just not in you. Like it, it, your identity is not there. And so, but she says, when the Spirit of God really moves in you and, and you you feel His delight and you really adore Him, then it just naturally begins to flow out of you. And, you know, I, I remember, I've told this story as well too, but I remember when I was just starting out into ministry, I was in seminary and I still had habits that I wasn't proud of, that I kept secret, that had become idols and addictions, smoking cigarettes and stuff like that, like, not super scandalous stuff. But still, like, yeah. it owned me. I was enslaved to it. I was keeping it secret. I had a partitioned life, you know, like there were, I was, nobody really knew the whole me. I was keeping things. And it was a hard thing to, to walk away from. And I remember talking to my father-in-law and I was like, man, I have tried so many times. Like, I was really good at quitting. I did it all the time, <laughs> right? Um, but I tried so hard and I kept failing and I kept failing and I kept failing. And he said to me, the problem is not, you know, that you need to try harder. It's that you need to love Jesus more. Hmm. And so it's like, you know, your battle, your sin battle, the secret of it isn't, you know, I'm I'm gonna muster up a bunch of willpower and I'm gonna I'm gonna run at it again and I'm gonna give it my best. What he's saying is what works is when you just set it aside a moment and you look at Jesus and you just see everything that you already have in him and you pour yourself into him. And the more that you realize what you have, it makes it easier to open your hands for what he's calling you to let go of. Like, God does not call you to let go of something bad without showing you something else that's better that you can grab hold of. And how do you get that? Well, you love him. It's by loving him more that you realize that everything that you're white-knuckled grabbing hold of and you can't let go it starts to look like rubbish by comparison. And mm. eventually, maybe slowly, maybe over years, God will start peeling your fingers open to give you something better than what you're settling for already. Yeah, and you always say, you know, God's not asking you to empty your hands without grabbing hold of Jesus. Mm -hmm. Like, I think that's a great image because you always feel like, oh, now my hands are empty, so I'm empty. But he's not asking you to do that. He's not right. just asking you to empty yourself, but he's saying, hey, empty yourself so I can fill you. Mm -hmm. Like, he's not just trying to take out the fun or whatever, the addiction or the idol. He's saying, no, there's something better for you out there. And I think that's so easily forgotten in the moment. Mm -hmm. Yeah, religion for me, when I when I was first considering all this stuff, the only thing that I ever thought, like honestly, I mean, just, <laughs> when they were like, you know, you should become a Christian, one of my biggest fears was, okay, I lose all my drinking buddies. I lose all the, you know, the fun and the crazy stories and everything else. And it seemed like Christians, the only thing they do is go bowling. Like I, <laughs> you know, like, or go watch a movie. This feels really boring. So I'm going to have to walk away from everything fun. And which of course was destructive, but it was fun in the moment. And I'm going to have to grab hold of something that's really seems boring or did to me at the time. 
And what I'd never imagined in a million years back then, I just thought, okay, I'm, I'm resigning my life to stuff. I, I'm just going to, I'm going to have to walk away from stuff that I really like to, to go be boring for the rest of my life with these Christians. And what happened is the more you fall in love with Jesus and the more you see him as ultimately beautiful, guess what? Like all your desires begin to change. Yeah. You, and, and I didn't anticipate that. Like all of a sudden, the things that I really find joy in, like doing a podcast, this is fun to me. Me of 20 years ago would have looked at this and wanted to beat me up. Like, <laughs> <laughs> you know, like what what is wrong? But God has made this so delightful. And if there's somebody out there who's discouraged that finds hope in this, like, man, that's fulfilling, and it's way better, and it's way better community than, you know, drinking buddies and going out and getting in trouble and all that kind of stuff. Like, God changes your desires. The more you fall in love with Him, the more His desires become your desires, and His hatreds become your hatreds. Like, it's that was so surprised to me in the sanctification process. Naturally, that happened, which was kind of cool. All right, so John in verse 4 then jumps, and I mean, he loves these kinds of statements where he's like, yeah, if you say this, you're not a Christian. I mean, it's, yeah. he, like, he lays clear. this law down pretty often in this letter. He says, whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. And that's that's an important word because that perfected means what? That right now it is not perfect, yeah. right? You're going to have stumbles, you're going to to fall down, you're going to mess up all through the journey until you reach glory. But the idea behind this is, man, I am committed to striving after obedience. I want to please Him, not to gain my identity, but to show, to allow Him to have His way in me, to and to allow the Spirit that lives in me to move for His glory and for His purposes. And as we do that, over time, the love of God is going to grow more and more toward perfection in me. And by this, we may know that we are in Him. And so what it's not saying is, you do this stuff so that you get salvation, but when you see this stuff in your life, it's a helpful assurance that you know the Spirit's at work in you. Like, I can remember when I first became a Christian, getting so overwhelmed in worship that like I'd get goosebumps and... You know, I can remember different feelings. I can remember answers to prayers. And in those moments, I'd always think to myself, don't forget this moment. Yeah. Because God is so real and so present and so powerful in this moment. I never want to forget this. And it's that's what John is saying. Like when when you can obey, when you can be in the center of his will and you can sense his presence, like that's when you can know you're saved. Because the, the human mind wants to throw around all the accusations. You're not good enough. You're not a Christian. You're not this. You're not that. But it's when you cling hold. And, you know, it's like Peter. Like when Jesus says, are you going to leave me too? What does Peter say? Where else shall we go? <laughs> right? It's Peter's like, none of this makes sense. I'm struggling with it, but I refuse to let you go. That's, you know, when you're obedient, when it doesn't make sense to you personally even, that's when you look and say, okay, the Spirit of God is in me. He's warring for me. And I can, I can be confident in seeing my obedience and knowing that He's at work in me. Yeah, we turn to such fickle things for assurance, which is why I think we're always searching for it. Right? That's why that's such a foothold for Satan, just to creep in and just and put all the doubts in. But like here it's so beautiful that John's being like, no, you have assurance. Like, Look at your life. Like, mm -hmm. It's clear. 
And right, it's not just about how you feel about it in the moment, or it's not just like, hey, you're on a mountaintop and now you're in a valley, there's suffering that's entered into your life, but it's saying, no, here's the objective test. Like, mm-hmm. hey, are you, are you still walking with him? Or are you still abiding, you know, because he's in you? Mm-hmm. And if you're struggling with that, if that's really afflicting you, guess what? That's evidence that the Spirit's inside of you, sh- you know, kind of shaking you back to faith and obedience. Like, if you feel that tension in you, and it really is causing a struggle in you, that is a good sign. You know, if you're content to walk in the darkness and be like, I don't know if I'm a Christian, but who cares? I'm I'm yeah. chasing this and chasing that and everything but Jesus, and it doesn't prick your conscience even in the slightest, then that might be time for you to take an honest assessment and say, man, I have no obedience, I have no remorse, I have no regret, there's no evidence that the Spirit moves inside of me. That's when you need an honest gut check. And by the way, the solution for the person who has questions about assurance and the solution for the person who's rather convinced that this was never real is the same, and that is run to Jesus. Yeah. Uh, same, same solution either way. So what am I telling you? Run to Jesus. You, you're questioning your salvation? Run to Jesus. You yeah. don't think you have salvation? Hey, I know someone who can give it. You know, like, run to Jesus. So the solution is always the same. But... The love of God is perfected with time. The more you're obedient, the more you lean into His will, the more His love is perfected in your life. By this we may know that we are in Him, and whoever says that He abides in Him ought to walk in the same way in which He walked. And so that's another one of these points where John is saying, hey, do some self-diagnosis. Do you say you have no sin? Then you don't get it. Are you content to walk in darkness? Well, then you don't get it. Are you obeying his commands? Well, if not, well, and, and habitually so to where there's no struggle over it, well, then you're not, you don't get it. He's walked through this. It's really actually helpful. And it's good to remember that these letters were written for a purpose. Like, he understands mm-hmm. his audience. So sometimes we're trying to backtrack what these people were going through, but you can see how, man, them reading this and knowing their issues and where they're at as a people, this is probably so heartfelt. Mm-hmm. Like this guy in his 80s is still thinking about us, encouraging us to go back to Jesus. It's just such a heartfelt message and a warning that it's not just like, hey, don't sin. It's not like a big stop sign. It's like it's like a gracious person come to you and be like, hey, this is for your good. Mm-hmm. And w- one of the crazy things about John is if you were to ask, if you said, hey, tell me in one word what John's first epistle is about, what do you, what do you think the most common words would be that you would hear? I have no idea, to be honest. Okay, but I would say... That it's some people, the most common I would say is love. I'd hear, you probably hear light or darkness, light and darkness, love and hate. He gives all these binaries, but sin is all over the place. And so it's fascinating to me that he talks so much about sin and deception, and yet it's in an epistle that is absolutely overwhelmed Hmm. with the concept of love. And that would have been radical for the first century Jewish mind, because the, the whole idea of legalism and doing all these things that God requires, and you know, all of that was driven by a sense of duty. God expects you to do X, so you better do X. And if you don't, then you're a bad person and you're going to be kicked out of the community. And, you know, so slave away, be obedient, do the right thing, obey all the 613 laws of the Torah. You better be good enough. Da 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 da. And here John comes and he's like, hey, you're free from all that. But you're still, you still need to be obedient. Why? Because of love. God so loved you that he rescued you from sin. 
And now, in response, you should so love God that you want to please Him by walking away from sin. And by the way, you don't do that in your own strength. He so loves you that He gives you His Spirit to empower you to do that. Mm. And so it's interesting. He lays down all of these gauntlets where He's like, hey, if, you're, if this is going on, then you don't get it. But at the same time, what's the compelling motivation that He keeps going back to? Love. The grace of Jesus, yeah. It's grace. It's all love. It's so it's so the idea of the legalism that the Jews were trapped in is being shattered here, and now the stakes of disobedience feel far greater because before it's like okay I'm 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 not honoring my master, but now when you sin it's I'm taking advantage of the kindness of a God who is willing to die for me, mm. like that's grosser you know yeah. <laughs> it's worse is grosser a word more Work, gross works for me. All right, so verse 7. Beloved, I'm writing you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. At the same time, it's a new commandment that I'm writing to you, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. And so here you have John, he's doing something kind of confusing because it seems like he's contradicting, right? He's like, hey, I'm writing you no new commandment. And then he says, yeah, I'm writing you a new here's commandment. Here's a new one. <laughs> yeah. So here's my take on Do you have a take on that? You do yours first. <laughs> so what I think, when you read somebody says, oh, the, the book of the law, the, the law in a, in a Jewish mindset was the first five books of Moses, right? It included narrative, it was the story of the Exodus, it was the story of creation, and all of that was considered the law. And when Jesus or when when John here is coming along and he's saying, "Hey, this is nothing new. This is not a new law. When the law was first laid down in the Torah, it was pointing you to a savior that was going to come and redeem all of mankind from their sin. This whole gospel thing is not new. It's been around from the beginning. So this is not a new law. This is not something new. But at the same time, it is something new that I'm writing to you, which is this. And Jesus says this when he washes the feet, which is also in John, it's John 13, when Jesus himself says, I give you a new commandment. And he ups the ante on what? On love. Because before it was, you know, love your neighbor as yourself. Well, that was in Leviticus. That's the Old Testament. And Jesus repeats that as one of the great commandments, right? But then he ups the ante and he says, no, it's not okay. It's not just good enough that you love your neighbor as yourself. And the, and the great commandment that he gives when he's washing the feet, he says, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another as I have loved you. And so now it's not just, hey, love other people like you would want to be loved or as you're, you would want yourself loved. Now it's, no, 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 I'm calling you to be entirely sacrificial, even you know, when you have to lay down your life for someone else, for their benefit, now I'm calling you to a higher form of love, a gospel form of love. And that's kind of where this obedience is headed. It, it changes your heart to become more like him, which he says is the goal, right? That we're to walk in the same way he walked in verse 6. And so now it's a new commandment, which is, you know, love as he loved, because all the darkness and the things that we're clinging to about this world, guess what? It's all passing away. What are you clinging to it for? We go to war, we fight, we get into it with one another about stuff that's all going to be peeled away from our hands at the grave, right? 
So stop all that stuff is perishing. The true light is already shining in you. So focus on what's eternally important, which is the love of God and the love of your neighbor. Those are the only two things that go on forever. That is the new commandment. Love as Jesus loved. That's the call. That's a big call. Yeah, and it seems like he's taking us back to how he started the book. He's saying, like, no, the fact that Jesus came in the flesh changes things. Mm-hmm. Like the eternal Son of God put on human form. I saw it. Now you have someone who saw it proclaiming it to you. <laughs> so, like, this is new. The, the, Jesus has didn't enter the world in the flesh before. Like, this is the moment, and it changed things. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and God has been the example. He not only came into the world to show righteousness, but it was an entirely generous, humble righteousness that gave himself away for the sake of everyone else. That's who our God is. That's what he wants from us. And this is radical. If he's done that for us, what right do we have to withhold that from those that he calls us to give it away to? Yeah. You know, our salvation is entirely purchased and given to us. God is not asking us to do anything that he hasn't already done himself to far in, in a far, far greater measure. So love. And he says, moving on, in verse 9, whoever says that he's in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Does that shake you a little bit? Yeah, it's it's almost... <laughs> it's like another test, like the, mm-hmm. the the test he gave us up there. He's like, like he's making it very earthly and very human. Like, John knows what it's like to be a human. He's saying, like, hey, you know, if you know God and you experience him, then your love for your brother has to change. Mm-hmm. I love that line that says, we're the most forgiving people in the world because we're the most forgiven people in the world. And that's what he's saying. You can't taste the mercy of Jesus and the grace of Jesus and allow hatred of your brother or sister to just take up residence in your heart. There will be something in you. And it might not, it might be a struggle. It might take a while. Yeah. But you're not going to be content to be in animosity towards somebody. You're not going to be okay just hating that person and wishing them destruction because whatever, I don't care what they did to you, it doesn't rival what you did to God, period. And what did what was his response to you? He died for you. Yeah. What he he held on to nothing. You know, there was he you deserved his wrath. Really? There was there's no like justification you can make. Well, actually, God, like, no, you are guilty with a capital G, and he forgave you. And now for something far less consequential. Mm -hmm. You're refusing to offer forgiveness to someone else. If that's the case, you've never experienced him. You you just don't know mercy. You haven't been given mercy, therefore you don't know how to give it. And that's, you know, he's saying, you're in the darkness if you hate your brother. Yeah, and that's like why that's so important when we come to communion, that we're reminded of that every time. Mm -hmm. Like as we're about to take the elements, as we're about to confess our sins to Jesus and say, hey, Jesus, I want to receive your mercy in an experiential way, just like I'm about to drink this cup and I'm mm-hmm. about to eat this bread. That, but like the fencing of the table says, hey, whoa, if you have a, a brother or a sister that you need to make amends with to the best of your ability, like that's the most important thing you can mm-hmm. do right now. Yeah, because how can you really celebrate yeah. what those elements mean? I mean, if, if, you're, if you're holding on to grudges, if you're refusing mm-hmm. to offer grace or mercy to, then it's clear that you don't understand what those elements mean because that was done for you. Yeah. And he, he does that not just so that you get to go to heaven. Jesus redeemed you so that you could be his presence in this world to those that are also in this world. So 
when he forgives you, he forgives you so that you're an ambassador of forgiveness. And when you refuse to do that, you're living in rebellion to why he has saved you. Yeah. You know, so so forgive quickly. And don't hang on to grudges. And by the way, if you struggle with forgiveness because somebody has really wronged you and really, really hurt you, and man, everybody on planet Earth would hear your story and go, oh man, that's really wicked what they did to you. Yeah. And it's hard to forgive. Make it an act of worship. Mm. You don't do it for that person then. Do it for Jesus. Make it an act of worship that's incredibly costly to you to offer up that forgiveness and do it out of worship, and it'll become something precious to you. Oh, yeah. And it'll be precious to him for sure. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. When you love somebody well, like you remove causes for stumbling. You remove things that can cause conflict and injury. It just it makes things easy. And you know, as as stubborn human beings, we are really we find forgiveness really hard. But I have never, and I'm not saying this is impossible, but I have never, ever, ever forgiven somebody or been forgiven by somebody where I didn't feel such a great sense of relief and freedom the moment it happened. Like forgiveness is powerful, yeah. but we want to win, and we, you know, are in our pride. We're like, I, I want to win. You're wrong. I'm right. Admit it. You know, when in reality we know that if if we would just extend forgiveness and pursue reconciliation, it's far more beautiful than any victory we could get in the flesh by demanding that they kneel, you know, before us. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness. He does not know where he's going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. And man, hatred will do that to you. It, it will it'll make you walk in directions that you don't know where you're going, and one day you find yourself there and it's really unpleasant. So get out of the darkness. Forgive and love. So I'm going to race through verses 12 to 14. Basically what John is doing there is he's saying, hey, there's many people at different stages of their salvation or discipleship from newborns, like the tiniest of children, to fathers, and the Lord relates to each of them in specific ways. So you can read those for yourselves and and try to <laughs> decipher what they mean to you. We're going to jump down to verse 15 for the sake of time. It says, do not love the world or the things in the world. And so that needs some clarification because Jesus, you know, God so loved the world that he gave his own son. What this is talking about is the things in the world that try to entice you to give your affection, your adoration, to find your significance in it. It's worldly things, right? Don't love that stuff. And then he says, if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father's not in him. So here's another one of these things where he's like, if you're doing this, you're not a Christian. If you absolutely adore the world, if you're finding your satisfaction and significance in the world, the love of the Father's not in you, because if it was, you would not be totally sold out with all of your allegiances to the things of this world. Why? Well, because God has purchased you. He's called you to a different life, and if you're slaving away for the things of the world that are all going to be stripped away from you by, with a guarantee at, at the grave, you're living a vain life. God has something far better for you. And, you know, once you experience the love of the Father, it's like Paul says, the rest of the world is rubbish. It's sewage by comparison. That doesn't mean you don't stumble again, but if it's the overarching theme of your life that you just live for the world and you're totally not even concerned with what God wants for you, 
the love of the Father is not in you. He says, for all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, the word there is literally lust. It, it comes from epithumotic. It's, it's like a totally appetitive lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. That's not from the Father, but it's from the world. And this world is passing away with all of its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. And so, just to summarize, the desires of the flesh, the appetite, that is like, it could be a whole range of things. Probably the most commonly associated, like when you think the lust of the flesh, what are you thinking? Sexual lust. Sexual, totally. It's a, that's an appetitive thing. Uh, you know, eating, it's... it's immediate pleasures, things that are like, this will give me some sense of satisfaction in a short, it's it's going and getting drunk, it's whatever, drugs, addiction. It's satisfying an appetite. And so he says, okay, that's of the world. But then he says, okay, the desire of the eyes, and it's the same word here again, it's the lust of the eyes. And what that is, is it's all about appearance, is what this means. So it's, I want the world to be able to look at me and to see that I'm the best, that I'm amazing, that I'm, you know, I've got the best stuff, I've got the prettiest house, I've got the prettiest, you know, this, that, and the other, the nicest car, the nicest clothes, the prettiest wife. The, it's, I want my appearance to be really, really the best of anyone. And then the last one, the pride of life, is all about your possessions. It's, it's like, I want everybody to look at me and to see that I'm a great success, look at the career I've built, look at the the possessions I own, the wealth, I, the wealth I've amassed. And I was listening to a sermon that Rick Warren preached that was really good, actually. Um, and he says the three antidotes to these three things are integrity, humility, and generosity. And he's spot on. I thought, man, that's great. Because, you know, when, when, you're, when you're looking at an appetitive life, you know, usually those are things that you conceal. They're the secret things. They're my hidden addictions or my sexual sin or whatever. And so what do we do? We hide those away from our brothers. But what he says is, no, 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 this is where it's so important for a Christian to have integrity, which, little, like, etymology nerdy stuff, integrity comes from the same word where we get integer. It means whole. There's no hidden parts of your life. There's no fractions where eh, you get to see 90%, but the 10%'s hidden over here. And that's how do you battle the lust of the flesh, the constant desires that are shameful that everybody wants to keep hidden? Live a life of integrity. What you see in public is the way you are in private. You're sharing with people. You're being held accountable. You're being vulnerable with friends. You're an open book to those who know you, and you can never you know, like get lost into secret sin. The next one... Um, see, that's integrity. The next one is humility. It's, it's recognizing that you're no better than anyone else. You consider other people more important than yourself. You don't think about yourself all the time and what everyone else thinks about you, and that takes some spiritual discipline to not care about everyone else's judgments about you because you're secure in God's judgment of you, which says you're worth the price tag of a son. And then the last one, the pride of life, generosity. So if you if you want to be like, oh, everybody looks at you and your possessions and everything else, the way that you show that that doesn't have sway over you, give it away. Be absolutely generous with the wealth that you have. And so when you live a life of integrity and you fight for integrity, it will eat away at the appetitive lusting of the flesh. When you live a life of humility, it will tear down. And by the way, humility is a decision, Right? It will tear down the lust of the eyes, and if you live a life of generosity, you're showing the world that their gods of money and everything else are not your gods. Um, because, by the way, all—and this is where he ends in verse 17, 
all that stuff's passing away. Yeah. Like, why would you put your hope there? I mean, it's it's like if I came to you and I said, I want you to invest your life savings in Blockbuster, <laughs> you know? Like, no, it's going away. Like, it's it's on, it's, it's done. Like, there, I think there's still one store left. <laughs> hanging, but hanging strong. It's hanging, but it's going out. Like, why yeah. you'd be a fool to invest in something that's such a dumb investment, and yet humanity, the overwhelming majority of humanity, gives all of its, the investment of its lives to stuff that we know is passing away. Yeah, you can feel like the urgency of an older man who has come to grips with mm-hmm. dying. Mm-hmm. Like, he understands that, like, hey, he doesn't have tons left. Like, he's <laughs> lucky. Like, he looks around at his disciple buddies, and he's like, they're all gone. Like, they've mm-hmm. been gone. And here I am, late in life, and there's an urgency to us young people, and you mm-hmm. can just hear the heart of it. Like, hey, just stop. Like, not just don't stop just for pleasure's sake or for, you know, because you should, but for your own good. Yeah. Stop wasting your life. Yeah. Very John Piper-ish. Mm-hmm. It is. It's Ecclesiastes. Like, all that stuff is wasting away. It's it's empty. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. You want an everlasting return and investment for your life? There it is. So he moves on. Children, in verse 18, children... It is the last hour, like, you're coming to the end, like, this is, you don't, you don't have forever to figure this out, and as you have learned that the Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we, we know that this is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us, for if they had been of us, they would have continued with us, but they went out, that it might be complained that they are all not of us. So what in the world is that all about? <laughs> So the talk of the Antichrist all through Scripture, and there's multiple Antichrists. Like we've talked about uh, eschatology and how it comes in waves, and Jesus says the end will be like birth pains where it's like contractions come and go, and they come and go, and they come and go, and it's getting worse and worse and more frequent but more intense. That's how all of the tribulations, as you come to the second coming and the as we wrap this thing up, but all along the way, Jesus says, you know, there's going to be people who lead people astray. There's people, the love of people is going to grow cold. There's going to be many false teachers. And so John is saying, like, there are antichrists, plural. That's not a singular office. But what is their job? To lead people away from the gospel, to lead people away from Jesus. And those people are typically, they start in the church, and they, they're really seductive, and they're yeah. like, hey, look at this truth that I have, and before you know it, everybody has drifted away, and they're into legalism or antinomianism or some other destructive uh, belief system, and what he's saying is those are antichrists, and they never were, never were of us, because remember, the premise at the beginning of this book is, he who began a good work in you will carry it out to the day of completion in Christ Jesus, Right? Well, Jesus never began the work in them, because if he had, they would have continued. But it was all a show. It was all fake. They were never genuinely saved. They were never of us. Yeah, I think he's giving us the telltale signs of actually for us, like how do we see these antichrists? How do we see these guys? And Obviously, the first one is like if John is saying, hey, I'm proclaiming real truth. So this right here, you know, it's the circle of trust. You know, this is where the real gospel is. So mm-hmm. if somebody went out from us due to a different belief, you know, they're the Antichrist. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah. they're against Jesus. They're trying to lure you away from Jesus and, and to themselves or, or some way or another. So it's like that signal, like, okay, so who in here is left because they don't hold to an orthodox belief about Jesus? Well, 
you should really look at them and evaluate what they're saying. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and they they never really knew him. Like how Paul will ask this in Galatians. It's like, hold on a minute. Didn't didn't you experience him? How can you so quickly walk away from him? You knew the sweetness of the gospel. You knew communion with him. Like if you really knew that, like it would be impossible for you to walk away from that. If you really knew him and you really experienced him, you wouldn't be able to walk away. And so what John is saying is they never knew. Like they never experienced the power of the Spirit. This power of the Spirit's not in them tugging them back to to some semblance of a relationship. They they were deceived this whole time, and they managed to deceive others. But he goes on in verse 20, but you have been anointed by the Holy One, and you all have knowledge, which means, guess what? Who is the one that's responsible not only for your salvation, but for sustaining you and your salvation? It's the power of the Spirit. Ephesians talks about how you've been sealed by the power of the Holy Spirit and your salvation. And here, he's saying, you've been anointed by the Holy One, and you all have knowledge. I write to you not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it, and because no lie is of the truth. Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? So he's getting at, like, there's people in this congregation that have once held that Jesus was the Messiah, who are now claiming the opposite. And he's like, you want to know where the truth is? The liar is he who denies that Jesus is the Christ. There's your Antichrist. This is the Antichrist who denies the Father and the Son. And no one who... Hear this, because this is big on soteriology. You want, like, this is big. No one who denies the Son has the Father. That's a message of salvation. So... For, for worldview, like, oh, there's many ways to God, there's many ways that you can get to heaven. Right here, John is laying down another hard gauntlet where he says, if you don't have Jesus, you can't have the Father. Anyone who does not have the Son cannot have the Father. But whoever confesses the Son, Jesus, has the Father also. You have to have Jesus to have God, period. I mean, there's no other way to interpret this passage. It's it's a hard truth, it's an exclusive truth, and Christianity gets knocked for its exclusive truths, but it's a it's the most inclusive, exclusive claim ever made, because who's 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 kept out? What race is prevented from grabbing hold of the gospel? What gender? What what nationality? What wealth? What moral status? Like there's there's nothing that you could be a part of, no group, no sin, that where Jesus doesn't say, yeah, I can take you. I Come, come, give your life to me, trust me. Now, he may transform you yeah. from where you are, but there is no barrier whatsoever that would make Jesus say, oh, not, not your kind. There's none. It's so radically inclusive, but you have to have Jesus. Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father, and this is the promise that he made to us, eternal life. Um, so John, like you, you mentioned a minute ago in John 15 when he's talking about how you have to abide in Jesus, right? If you want to bear fruit, you have to abide in him. It's, it's his power, it's his presence, it's his spirit that enables you to live a fruitful life if you'll abide in him. And so what John is saying here is there's been a lot of people who've come in, there have been a lot of people who said the right things, but they didn't have any fruit, and they left us, and now they deny Jesus. They did not abide, and they bore no fruit. 
And he concludes this whole chapter, chapter 2. He says, I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you, but the anointing that you've received from him abides in you, which is cool because it's not just about you abiding in him. No, 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 no. The anointing that he has given to you in salvation abides in you. Well, who's doing that? He is. And so it's not all on you. It's, it's his promise. He has sealed you. His anointing follows you, and it abides in you, which is a comfort. And you have no need that anyone should teach you, but as his anointing teaches you and everything. So you've got the spirit in you that's, that's measuring everything against the word of God, the character of God. It, that is at work in you about everything. And it's true and is no lie, just as it has taught you, abide in him. And now, little children, abide in him. You picking up on a key word here? It's clear, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Abide, 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 abide. And now, little children, abide in him, so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink back from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. And if the skies opened up now and Christ returned you wouldn't want to be caught having hedged your bets. You want to be caught living a life that is all in, completely sold out for Christ because he lived a life that was completely sold out for you. He laid it all down, and that's what he's calling on us to do for him. And if we would do that, we would bring a taste of heaven into this world. John, again, is laying down like, if you say you don't have sin, if you're walking in darkness, if you're if you're not obeying, if you don't love your brother, if you if you don't have the son, if you're easily misled by all these people who claim Jesus isn't the Christ, like these are all ways that you can diagnose yourself to say, you know what, I'm not really a Christian. But here's the other part. If you feel on any of those points that John is challenging, you feel the tug of the Spirit to say, man, I, I'm not sure I am doing that well. I'm not sure I am obeying. I'm not sure I'm loving my brother. I'm not sure I'm forgiving. If the Spirit's working at you, then remember chapter 1. Yeah, He is faithful and just to forgive your sins if you merely come to Him and confess them. There's great liberty in that. And so John is wonderfully helpful at diagnosing our hearts, mm. but he's even better at giving a treatment for our hearts, which is Christ. Come to him, confess your sins, wrestle with this stuff, and grab hold of him with a sincere desire to lay it all on the table and to give your life in absolute trust to him more and more and more as he perfects you in love. That's the goal. Well, thanks so much for joining us this week, we will be back next week to tackle 1 John chapter 3. God bless. We hope you enjoyed your time with us and you will both subscribe to the podcast and listen regularly. You can find out more about Out of Water, catch up on past episodes, and access show notes at our website, riovistachurch.com slash outofwater.